All right, run it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Kick a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Today we are going deep into the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm joined by my friend Purvis Taylor. And some people might think, what has this got to do with mental health? And I think this has a lot to do with mental health. The mental health of an entire race, really. And it also has a lot to do with understanding how we understand each other. And so for me, it's felt very relevant and something I've just wanted to talk about. Um, I feel like interviewing and giving other people a voice is a good way to give back. And one of the best ways to understand someone or something is to get into the mind of someone else who's experiencing it and to stay curious about their reality. And really had to look at myself during the recent Black Lives Matter movement uprising after George Floyd's death and ask some hard questions about racism and white privilege in society and in myself. And I was surprised at what I found. Um, I've been on a bit of a research conquest and having to do some soul searching around how I can be a better ally to the black community, particularly as it relates to mental health. And this episode holds some of those insights. Um, So Purvis is an award-winning life coach, uh, speaker and author of Purvis Principles Volumes 1 and 2 and Single Man, Married Man. Um, As a result of his own trauma, Purvis has dedicated his life to the betterment of one's mental and emotional growth. Through his honing methods, he continues to transform the lives, lives of his extensive client roster that reaches both celebrities executives, organizations, and most importantly, inner city youth by pinpointing their needs and goals. Um, He's got a bachelor's degree in marketing from the University of Miami and his master's of clinical psychology from Columbia University. And that's actually where we met. We met, um, we both did the same master's degree. I was living in the States at the time and uh, yeah, I was trying to basically educate my way into survival um, about five years ago because I couldn't find a professional that I clicked with at that point and I'd always been fascinated with the mind so I was like I'll just try a degree in it and um, yeah that was one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had is going through that school and it's non-traditional clinical psychology the degree that we did it's very integrated very spiritual very holistic very whole human and very forward thinking and the types of people that attracted, um, I was, yeah, incredibly, I was in awe every day of the amount of people that came from the diverse backgrounds and I learned so much from them. And I'm excited to be able to grow stronger together with my friend and uh, ex-classmate and I really do hope that you pull some helpful things out of this. We're going to hear his story 
um, and try and humanize the reality of racism in the 21st century. We're going to explore the difference between white privilege and racism, um, what we can do to help lift up our black brothers and sisters and do small acts to push society forward, uh, how the Black Lives Matter movement extends beyond an issue of police brutality. Uh, we'll explore the incarceration issue, issue and how there's so many layers that build up to perpetuate uh, that perception or a perception um, and stigma over time. And also one that I found really interesting is this child state that people can be trapped in after trauma. And Purvis talks about his reflections around how this has affected the black community and how it plays out in our present reality. Um, good to have you back. Um, many more episodes to come. Enjoy, guys. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that you've given up an, an hour of your time to have this chat with me. Um, I know that there's so much going on at the moment and that you are a, an amazing voice and carrier of the message, um, not just for Black Lives Matter, but I think for spirituality and mental health. Um, uh, in the intro, I, I mentioned that we went to university together and I had the privilege of watching you go through a, a course like that and, and we were like the mutant X-Men, I reckon, like the amount of diversity that came into that class. Um, and so I just want to paint a bit of a picture around who you are. So you grew up in New York? No, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I grew up in Dallas? Yeah. I forgot that, that part. How was that? that? Dallas is awesome. Dallas is, Dallas is beautiful. Um, you know, I, didn't re I, I have an appreciation for it much more now than I did when I was living there, obviously, hence why I left. But, <laughs> right. But um, yeah, no, Dallas is a beautiful city. And people. And what age did you leave Dallas? Um, so I went to college, undergrad, University of Miami when I was 17. So I left when I was 17 and I haven't been back since. Okay. I mean, I, I go back to visit my family, but I haven't lived there since. And what, and what brought you to New York? Um, originally, so you know, I used to work in the music industry. Yeah. I used to work for, for Def Jam. And that's what originally brought me to New York is that I wanted to be like this music executive. And then I got, then I transitioned into modeling and wanted to be this big actor and things like that. And then I kind of just like life hit me in such a way. And I, and I experienced a, a deep, deep depression, a dark night of the soul, if you will. And it kind of brought me into the space of being a life coach and, and, and really finding my purpose in that. Yeah. And, and so today you are a full-time life coach and, and mentor. Um, you mentor um, everyone from, I hate the word regular people, but people like me and, you know, um, all the way through to celebrities and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you say your mission is in that business? I would say is I want people to thrive. And I want, you know, thriving is better than just doing okay. It's really operating at optimal levels. So whatever mm -hmm. that is for you, I want that to, I want you to achieve that. And what do you see some of the themes, uh, obviously with confidentiality and privacy, what do you see some of the themes of the clients that you speak to? What are the things that people struggle with? Well, you know, it's like what we talked about even in, in school, you know, people struggle with worth. Yeah. And value and finding their voice. 
Yeah. And and really like, a, you know, it was so funny. I was talking to somebody like I was saying, like, you know, achievement can be a sign of depression. Mm. It can be a response to trauma. And we think because someone is so successful that that means that they're good. But mm. Sometimes that's not the case. And so a lot of people are like, you know, suppressing their trauma, not even acknowledging that they've been through a lot of things. So it's like really that voice and that self-worth and value. I would say that's the thing that runs across almost everyone, male and female celebrity, you know, regular person like that's that runs through. And and um, would you feel that 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 lack of self-worth is coming from like an, an internalized parental voice? Like, where is that coming from, do you think? I think I think a lot of times we all I mean even for myself like I think a lot of times we believe a lie. And yeah. you know, when you believe something the evidence of it shows up, right? Yeah. When you're looking for something to be true, you find the evidence. And so I think a lot of us is just unlearning. Yeah. You know, a lot of beliefs and 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 things that we thought were true. You know, like the fact that you came out of the womb and that you're here, you have value. Yeah. And you Amen. to be whole and to live, to be loved and to thrive. That alone makes you valuable. You understand what I'm saying? And I think for us, we go through this thing of life and dysfunction and, you know, pain and all those things like that. And we somehow take that on as an identity. It's like, no, your identity is that you get to be whole. Your identity is that you get to be a human being. Mm. So I think that's where it comes from. We, regardless of whatever the situation may be, I think a lot of us are just not in tune with our humanity. Agree. Um, and I think it's, it's funny, you know, you call it belief. Another word for it is stories. It, a lot of suffering is just stories and beliefs that are inaccurate that we tell ourselves on repeat, right? And we never have the tools or the tactics to break that cycle or to challenge that narrative. And it sounds like you really help people dive into that belief system and challenge that narrative. Yeah, you know, it's funny, like whenever I see a person, like when I saw you, I was like, this dude is a star. Oh, thanks, I, I man. Told you that. I told you that. Thank you. Um, I always see people as their best self. And I've always been that way since I was a kid. And so I think that's part of like the purpose and what I do. So it's like, I just see people the way that they don't see themselves. And mm. if I see this, then and if you see it one day, imagine how your life is going to change. So you've also got a gift for seeing potential, I guess, then. Yeah. 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 Um, if you can hear that in the background, that's my dog scratching on the door and I'm just going to ignore her because eventually she'll go away. Uh, but she is, she is relentless. That's one of her strengths. Um, and yeah, talking about strengths, I think identifying people's strengths is a real gift and you have to be able to see through um, preconceived notions or judgment or perceptions. Um, and, and it sounds like for you and and I really felt this with you that there was no separation of color or whatever, or, or even country, like I'm from Australia. There was like, you're, you really get into someone's intrinsic value pretty quickly. How do you think you've been able to do that? Well, I think that's, that's my faith system. You know, I'm a Christian and, and that's part of it is just loving the, the person, the soul. Yeah. And that this person is a spirit. And I do my best to try to do that. Because mm. um, I have, you know, I have clients from all walks of life. Like I have adult entertainers as clients. Mm. I have, you know, people from all walks of life who've done, you know, crazy things. And my thing is, I really, but you're a human being, you're a soul. And so that's 
what I'm tuning into that humanity, yeah, that person. Um, but I've I, I've had to, if I want to do this work of healing, I have to be that way. Right, right. And, and would you class yourself as a healer? You know, it's funny. So many people do. I don't per se, but so many people do. Right. Yeah. Wow. And tell me, what would you say is the uh, the thing that lights you up the most? When I get an email from a client um, that maybe I hadn't spoken to in a while, and they're telling me that they're doing good, mm. and that light makes me cry. Mm. Um, because I know, like, I just applaud the bravery. It takes bravery to be your best self. It takes courage yeah. to want to be better. You know what I mean? And, and when I see people just being brave and exhibiting and, put, and implementing the tools and applying the tools that we come up with together, um, that just is overwhelming. Mm. So, so that's also within that, you're also seeing the success of your own self in the mentorship that you've given when you see someone, you know, really turn the corner. And I know that that must feel amazing. It does. It, like I said, it, it really makes you cry because you're just like, man, you think about how messed up you are as a person. <laughs> and you're just like, man, I'm being used to help this person. And it's just like, it's, it, it, it never gets old. I've been doing this for 10 years. It never gets old. Wow. That's a gift. So uh, can you tell me your most cherished it doesn't need to be childhood, but your most cherished memory to date? Oh, gosh. Um, probably would be my dad seeing me, you know, graduate undergrad because that was like the last, kind of like the last time he saw me really achieve something. Mm. And, um, and, and he passed away like not too far long after that. So I think that was awesome because, you know, my father was a very complex man. You know, we think about it, me and my, my, my siblings, we talk about it now. We probably, we, we think that he was probably undiagnosed as bipolar mm. and didn't know it because he was in Vietnam and he, you know, PTSD, all those things. And when you think about how he just used to medicate himself and, and cope and just the way he would act sometimes, just like, okay, something clearly was going on. But yeah, at the time I didn't, I didn't know now that I've, been educated and I've been in school I can kind of look for those things but mm. um, all he wanted was for his kids to do better than him you know what I mean and and in that moment he was just so proud like everywhere we went he was like my son just graduated from college oh. like it was just unnecessary because <laughs> <laughs> like, we drove from Miami once I graduated from Miami back to Dallas and it's like whenever you go to the gas station oh yeah man I'm just here because you know my son just graduated my daddy, they don't need to know. <laughs> he was just so, That's so cute. And it was just like, you know, you, your father's in your life. So, you know, like the importance of having a father in your life. So like just that, I would, I would say that's what came to me immediately when you asked me that. Yeah. Uh, and I want to pick up on that. Um, the, the father figure, um, a bit later, what would you say? And for whatever you're comfortable saying, what would you say is one of the hardest parts or almost traumatic memories that you have? Oh man, I have many. <laughs> <laughs> I have many. Um, being made fun of in school and, 
you know, being told I wasn't a man and, you know, by girls and, you know, because I was, I wasn't all, I wasn't like masculine, masculine growing up and people used to emasculate me all the time. And I remember this girl was just saying like, no woman would ever want to be with you because you're not even a man. You're not even a boy. Like it was just, you know, that stuff, Mm. that stuff really, really hurt. Um, Seeing my father, like, you know, strung out on heroin. Um, the feeling of betrayal, you know, you would think somebody's your friend and you find out they're not your friend. And you know what I mean? Like it's so many things. Um, him, the last conversation I had with my father before he passed away from heroin overdose. And I kind of like, so I had a full conversation with him and then he called me one day, he was like really down. And I was like in a rush to go somewhere. And I was like, dad, I can't tell right now. And then that was like literally the last time I spoke to him the next time he was dead. You know, and I and I said to myself, man, if I just would have, you know, just taken that extra five, ten minutes to speak to him, because he sounded down, like it was obvious that he was down. And um, so that moment, I had many, Mitch, honestly. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's super tough because, you know, I, I hope that you've also worked through that, that story because you know, it's so easy in the moment to be like, hey, life's happening right now and we can't be on and perfect all the time. And and who are you to know that that would be the last time you would speak to your father? But it's just such an unfortunate situation or circumstance. Uh, it just sucks. It is. It, it is, but it's also like, but I'm also of the mindset of not being a victim. And so even with my father, there's still a space in me that's like, well, dad, you still could have made a different choice. Mm. So like, you know what I mean? So like, I'm very, I strike a, I try to strike a balance with it. Mm-hmm. That there's all, you know, that we know of studies of people who've cured themselves of schizophrenia. Yeah. You know what I mean? There, there are so many, we're so empowered that we can change our narratives. Right. And so there is a space for me that, that has, I have, complete peace with him being gone but I often say to myself I wonder if if someone just would have told him that he could change his narrative that yeah. doesn't have to be his story what what would have happened like who he would be today you know what I mean I think about that but then I also just like well that's the choice he made and I have to accept that yeah I I love the fact that we're talking about narratives and I also love how how balanced you are at seeing a narrative um can I can I hear a little bit about where in your narrative have you experienced racism personally? And, and if we can put it into three different buckets, a small example, so like maybe crossing the street, a medium, and then a, a severe example. Um, I don't know if I have. Okay, I will say this. Probably a minor one was that I had. So growing up in Texas, we have, I don't know if you guys have this in Australia, but we have gifted and talented program. Do you have that? Yeah. So we had a gifted and talented program and they didn't let any black people into the gifted and talented program, even though I did it and I had the grades and I had to fight my way to get into gifted and talented. And this is like, I'm in the fourth grade, (laughs) nine years old fighting. And and it was obvious that there were, I I was like the first black boy in gifted and talented. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I had to fight and advocate for myself. I was like, I knew I had the grades. I knew I tested well. And this is nine years old. And I was like, there's no reason for me to not be in, in the gifted and talented program. So I would say that's a minor one. Um, 
a medium one just being called a nigger. By white people? From, mm-hmm. Wow. That's wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I would say a major one, um, being pulled over in Texas. I've had some here in New York. I don't drive here, so that's why my experience with um, cops in New York is kind of a different type of racism. Like it's weird, but um, I would say obvious being pulled over in Texas and having six cops pull you over. <sighs> Tell light. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. All of them drawing their guns on me. Fuck me. And the thing that got me out was the fact that I was in college. And I and I had my college ID. Wow. Um, bit of vulnerability from my side before we move on. Mm-hmm. My my goal of this interview is to A help see the world and the light of uh Purvis Taylor that is a bright one, and B to help um re-educate particularly white people on the reality of racism. And I think that I can't, you know, one of the main ways I know how to be a beacon of change is to A, get really, really smart, vulnerable people to tell stories and B, tell stories of my own. Um, My first, when, when all this stuff really blew up with the Black Lives Matter movement, I found it super interesting that my first gut reaction was that, what do you mean? Racism doesn't exist anymore. Like that was my, honestly, as shameful as that is, that was my first reaction because I'm like, Mm -hmm. and I never saw that as privilege. I just saw that it is, I honestly saw it as factual. I'm like, I've lived in New York. I've lived in Seattle. I've lived in Australia. I have lots of black friends. I've never heard someone use the N word. I've never looked at someone differently because of the color of their skin. Um, From what I know, there's equal opportunities at jobs. And then... Like looking back on that now, I'm like, whoa, that was ignorant. And how has how has me, like the most educated white male, like who has had all the opportunities, how can I still be ignorant? Um, and it's only within the inquiry that I've spent over the last few weeks being like, this is alive and well in a bunch of areas and that it's what I've found the most important thing is to get into the heartbeat of it because you can, you can look at the stats, you can look at all that and get, a, get an you know, obvious um, occurrence of it, but it's when you hear the personal stories of people that you think, wow. And this, this is you know, rooted so much deeper than just things that happen on the street with police. Um, mm-hmm. This is like generationally uh, the trauma has never really healed from slavery and incarceration and everything and that we're just seeing this play out from small manifestations on the surface right exactly yeah very good very very good okay so it is it's funny my my mom who grew up she was a she marched with dr king wow and for her she's just kind of like this has always been happening but it's just because we have cameras on our phones Mm mm-hmm you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's been happening. And even to me, even for me, right, growing up in Texas, growing up in the South, where that's kind of like, almost kind of like the norm, mm. for me, it didn't trigger me as much as it does other people, because I, unfortunately, I'm accustomed to this. Right. You know what I mean? So it was like, 
it's like really again like you know what i mean i'm just like yeah just tired yeah 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 how how would you describe the difference between white privilege and racism um i i I would that's interesting that's a good question i would say that white privilege is kind of like um knowing that you're going like not even consider like just literally living in a will for ignorance right Mm. like just kind of like you're just oblivious to certain things happening right Mm. racism is like being and having an awareness that that uh, of another person's race and you purposefully choosing to mistreat them roger that yeah that makes sense so white privilege is an ignorance of the advantages that you have without inquiry or questioning and um racism might be the intentional choice to look badly or treat others badly based on the color of their skin yes what do you think is more and this might sound like a silly question but i'm genuinely interested what do you think is more of like an actual material threat at the moment to black people is it white privilege or racism I would say both. Um, hmm. I will, and, I, and the reason why I say that, I will tell you this, this little brief story. So I, Please. I was, um, they were filming, they were doing a TV show on me and I was working with people from all walks of life because they want, it was kind of like Ayala fixed my life. And it was kind of like, you know, I had, I didn't know these people and we were just talking. And this man, I'll never forget this, this, this white man, I forgot his name, but he was telling me this story about how, he understood racism for the first time or his white privilege for the first time and racist, systemic racism and his white privilege. So he was saying that it was a woman, a black woman who applied for the same job as him, right? And she was going to be doing the same amount of work as him. And he said that they were going to pay her $20,000 a year less than him. And they were doing the same amount of work, the same job. And it wasn't based off seniority. It was just based off of you know what I mean? And he said, he said he was so confused. He was like, why is she getting $20,000 less than me? And no one can give him a, an answer. And he said, like, you know, when I, and he was saying to me, he was like, Purvis, when I go into a job, I never, you know, and obviously he's a man too. So we got to add that part onto it, you know, being a man and obviously female dynamic, but he was, mm. I've never, ever questioned about my worth. I've never even had to even consider that I'm being cheated on on you know salary and things like that and he said he told the woman to not take the job wow and that's when he said he had an awareness that he had a privilege over her right and he understood racism in a way that he never understood it before and so what do we do when when we realize uh, i think step one is to become aware of our privilege and then Mm -hmm. step two how do we change that I think what he did was powerful. He told her not to take the job. He was mm. with her. He told her what happened. And I think my thing is, look, I think for a lot of black people, I think we don't want, we just want you guys to use your voice. If you see, right. say something, literally, if you're like, Mitch, if you're like, your purpose is dope for that job and y'all need to pay him what he's worth. I think purpose is incredible. I think he's better than this dude who you guys are coming up with. That's what I want you to do. You know what I mean? Mm. And injustice, we're like, no, this this person is being mistreated. Can we have a town hall meeting? Can we just use your voice? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that's a great um, that's a great 
single call to action, which is use that privilege, use that platform. And it doesn't need to necessarily be big fundraisers or donations or whatever. The biggest thing is those micro interactions. If you see an injustice or inequality, do something. It's like me and you, right? You and I are both attractive men. We're going to get certain things based on Mm. how we look, right? If I know that I'm going to be able to get into a spot and I know my friend may not necessarily, may not have, I, I, I hate saying it, the attraction that I have, I'm going to make sure that he gets in. Right. And so it's the same thing. It's like, if you can't get, if I can get into the party, I'm, I'm going to pull you into the party. That's what we want. So it's like pulling each other along. It's, it's using, it's using that, that um, wherever we are in, in whatever walk of life, pulling each other along at the same speed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and literally just like, you know, like, like I, like I think Mitch is dope at this. If I think that Mitch is doper at something than this person, I'm not going, just because y'all want me to hire this person, I'm going to hire Mitch. Mm-hmm. He's the right person for the job. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's that type thing. And, and I think that the, it's not just doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing even when it's hard. Even when it's hard and no one's looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it, even when it's a threat to you. And, that's, and, you know, and we know this in the, in the space. It's like it's integrity is who you are when no one's looking. Yeah, I like that. How do we, how do we make sure that, that more people are doing that so that when someone stands up for someone in public, they don't get left alone, that other people stand up on the bus or in the club or on the sporting arena and go, hey, no, I'm with him or her. Like, that's fucked. Don't say that shit. You know, I think the problem with, you know, I think the problem of it is, is that we don't have empathy, right? Mm. And I think a lot of, everybody's listening Everybody's listening to be understood versus listening to understand. Yeah. It's different, right? Yeah. And I, like that. I think it really boils down to that place of humanity and that empathy. We've all, we all know what injustice feels like. Yep. Right? And so it's really tapping into those spaces of like, but imagine that person feels what you, that injustice you felt, they feel that all the time and they still have to keep living. Mm. You get what I'm saying? So it's about, have you ever seen the movie A Time to Kill? I haven't, no. Okay, so are you familiar with it? Do you know what I'm No. Okay, so it's a movie of Matthew McConaughey, Samuel Jackson, and it takes place in Mississippi, and it's based on a John Grisham novel, and it's like a, a black girl gets raped by some white supremacists, right? And at the end of the movie, he has all the, all the jury close their eyes, and the jury's all white, of course. And he has them telling them a story, and he's just talking about a little girl getting raped. And he said, imagine if that was your daughter. And then are you saw the tears coming out of people's eyes. He appealed to the empathy within them. Right. That's what Samuel Jackson's character was found not guilty for, mm. you know, for retaliating against the, the people that raped his child. But I think a part of it is really us getting beyond ourselves and, and being wrong and willing to be wrong and really just tapping into that space of like, yo, I really want to understand this. I don't want to have my preconceived notions about this. I really just want to understand this and really tapping into that vulnerable space. Mm. So the space that we have to get to. Yeah. And, and I totally relate to, to that sentiment in that the part that I can feel in my body when through all this is the frustration. Because as I start to drop my white privilege more, and as I start to get more curious, I start to really get into that empathetic mode of being like, fuck, that must be annoying. Just being like, 
I would want my rights defended or I would want someone to understand my perspective and it would just be that much harder than what it already is for, for someone to understand you or defend you or whatever. Man, that's just like permanently having a weight vest on when you're climbing up the hill and everyone else is expected to walk at the same speed, but they don't have a weight vest on. And it's like the weight vest can't be seen. So everyone's like, why are you walking slower? And it's like, bro, you can't see underneath this jacket that I'm wearing is this fucking weight vest. Exactly. And that's a, and, and, and really, that's the thing is like, you know, I was telling somebody that I was like, you know, and that's where the mental health component comes in with it, right? Which just makes it even more challenging because you have to, we're in this COVID space. You have to, here in America, people of color are disproportionately affected by COVID more than anybody because most of the time we're the essential workers. Mm. grocery stores and all those things mm. and you're just trying to be a human being so as a human being you have your own issues right and then you got this covid thing happening where you're disproportionately affected then you have this whole other layer of racism so then it's like the grief becomes complicated we've all experienced grief right all of us have experienced grief before but imagine you can't even get to the thing that's really really hurting you because you're just trying to make it you're just trying to find a survive way to, to make it in this world yeah. and not, you know what I mean? So that's why the mental health, is, mental health crisis in the African-American community is so high because we haven't even been able to get to us. Right. Make it through all the other stuff. Right. So it's, it's almost just like this, um, this way of dealing has been purely survival and band-aiding yes. and there's this broken bone underneath that you're trying to get to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a challenge. And that's a challenge. And even still within that space of us, I say, you know, life is still happening from us. We still can create. We still can become. We still can be. What right. makes Black people so dynamic, right, is because of the, we beat the odds. Even <laughs> in spite of all the things that have happened, we still, have, we still show up. Yeah. And now it's like tapping into that again. And, that's, and again, that space is the space that I tap into with all my clients. Right. Yeah. You know I mean? That higher self. Yes. Yeah. 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 So can I, um, can I ask you four hard questions that I believe will, will help people who do, um, who are lagging on this white privilege and who are lagging on this racism, um, see another perspective. Cause that's really important. And I think we have to ask the hard questions. Um, so what would you say to particularly a white person who says George Floyd's incident was police brutality, not racism. I would say to them, well, what about all the videos of white people punching cops, even pulling guns on them, um, being disrespectful to the cops, and they walk away in handcuffs? Dylan Roof shot up nine black people in the church, and they took him to get Burger King yeah. afterwards. You know what I mean? That's what, that's what I would say. Right. So, so it's that it's not an isolated incident. There is, there is definite racial differences within the police brutality sector. But also I think part of that is that racism is happening outside of just systemic police brutality. It's happening on the street. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. It's, um, um, you know, going into, I don't know if this is related, but going into like a high end store and being followed around. Right. You know what I mean? And I can buy, I can afford to get whatever, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or even if I can't, I'm still allowed to be in this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like having, having that, that shit is annoying. You know what I mean? So it's like, 
Yeah. All right. So um, on that, and again, there's only this level of trust between us that allows me to ask yeah. these questions. Um, so um, uh, there is this perception in the black community that there is this criminal perception that follows them everywhere. Um, and I think that the statistics from what I read, one in 17, um, one in 17 people in prison are white, one in three are black, um, which is fucking crazy. Um, could you, uh, what happens if a white person says, yeah, but that's just because black people commit more crimes than white people. And I guess my response to that would be that that's, that's so layered mm. uh, because it is. Um, you think about, you think about the, a lot of black people are in jail. So many black people have been released from jail from DNA evidence, right? Who've been accused, falsely accused of situations, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that, right? Then there's also the uh, inequities in, um, in the justice system. So, a person, there are literally people in jail for having an ounce of weed. Right. You know what I'm saying? And versus other people, other kids who get to go to rehab as opposed to going to jail being criminalized. Yep. So it was like, it's, that's a very layered, layered question. Are there black criminals? Of course there are. They're white, they're Muslim. There's, that's, that's, there's a segment of that in every race and culture. But to really but you really got to dissect the criminal justice system here in America. Like there are inequities, like obvious inequities. There's a woman, the same thing that got George Floyd off for um, killing Trayvon Martin. This woman tried to use that same defense. Her husband was beating her, a black woman. He was beating her and she used her stand her ground law and she's still in jail. And he was beating her. And Mm. proven he was beating her. You see what I'm saying? So what worked for one didn't work for another. Florida. Yeah. So yeah. Like there, you know, that's a very layered question. And, and, and so my thing is like, have equity. If you rape somebody, everybody got to go to jail for, you know, life or whatever that is. There shouldn't be, there shouldn't be some, the guy, the guy that um, in Stanford, the white guy that raped the girl that was drugged. He got six months and he got to go home. Yeah, right. You see what I'm saying? Like they caught him raping the girl in Stanford. And so like there's a lot of there's a lot of inequity. So with that question, I would be like, we have to take it piece by piece. Yep. Yep. And it's and and to your point around the layers, there's also a layer which is there is a whole cake that sits underneath that of um, decades worth of context as to why black people are committing more crimes. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that, unfortunately, you can trace back to the fact that they've had their rights suppressed for, by, for a long time and also the stealing of wealth. Um, yes. Yeah. Black Wall Street. Um, and, 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 you know, epigenetics, like the trauma past right. genetics is very real. And so, like, thank you for bringing that up. That's Absolutely. We have, right. Black people have the strongest dollar in, in this country. We have the strongest dollar in America. Wow. And, and yeah, the, 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 there is, the, you know, a question is so hard to answer so cleanly because there is so much context that, that doesn't get brought up usually. Um, yeah. And, uh, okay, so another, an, um, another tough question. Um, uh, black on 
uh, I've I've heard someone say this to me: black on black crime um, kills more deaths than police brutality does in any given year. How can we say Black Lives Matter if they don't believe it themselves? Right. And so the thing is, black on black black on black crime is a term, you know, that's been developed to identify that because they don't say white on white crime, right? And you know what I mean? Because by and large, white people are killed by white people. And I think that's a true for every every race. Every race. Yeah. Um, what it is is really a crime of proximity, right? And so if you if you have people in a certain sector and everyone has the same mentality and it's like a fight for territory and it's really about the lower self and really that's the space that you're tuned into, that's going to happen, right? So it is, and that's also people who haven't been in tune with their humanity, I think across the board. I think a lot of times it's a lot of ignorance. It's a lot of uneducation. It's, it's, it's a layered thing. But I don't like the term black on black crime because that's mm. we don't say white on white crime. We don't say Mexican on Mexican crime. We just say crime. You know what I mean? It's a crime. Those are crimes of proximity. Of territory. Um, yeah. And do you think that if we change some of the systemic issues in the justice system, in the wealth system, in the emotional reconciliation system, that we would see reductions in black on black crime? I think so. Yeah. I think so I definitely think, I definitely think, and, and, and here's the thing. Some people don't want, don't want to be enlightened. Some people, some people right. want to stay where they are. Right? right. And so we gotta factor that in too. Sure. But I do think, but I do think if people had a sense of awareness, then you become responsible. I think a lot of people don't know you know, you have to think, not everybody, I come from Lancaster, Texas, which is, you know, country town outside of Dallas. I had an awareness in me that there was more, but there are people who still live in Lancaster to this day. It doesn't make me better than them. It just means that I had an awareness that there was more to life. Right. They are still in Lancaster and maybe, maybe just now they might have this awareness that life could have been different for them. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, but I, you know, again, I go back to the space of responsibility. Like once you become aware of something, then you're responsible. Yeah. Once somebody shows you something, then you're like, oh, shoot, now nah, I'm responsible for how I show up mm-hmm. and, and, and move from that space. Yeah. And that responsibility can be, um, can be overwhelming sometimes um, mm-hmm. for a lot of people because they're like, well, I'm empowered for my life. Oh, I don't want this. I can go back to being um, not empowered and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And I think a lot of times, even yeah. with, you know, young men who didn't grow up without their fathers who are now fathers themselves. And it's like, they're amazing fathers. Now I say, you know why you're an amazing father? Because you had to imagine something that you didn't see that was mm. for you. And so if we can do that, if you can break the cycle of being, you know, quote unquote, an absentee father, why can't we break the cycle of showing, you know what I mean? Of willful ignorance, or we can break cycles of anything. Right, right, right. And, and, from the research that I've done over the last few weeks in, in wanting to proactively as, as much as possible break down my white privilege and become anti-racist, which I believe I, I am, but really and truly um, validate that, I've, done, I've noticed that a lack of a father figure in an African-American household, even Barack Obama has said this time and time again, is a huge issue that needs to be addressed. Right. Absolutely. And the thing is, 
And also, too, you know, even ter- in terms of the inequities, even with mental health, right? Mm. Touch on that for one second. Yeah, please. You know, like, Black men and Black boys exhibit depression different than any other demographic. Mm. Right? And so Black men, what typically the emotions that Black men are comfortable resting in are anger and indifference. Mm. Those are easier to harness than than to say hurt mm. or the disappointment. And a lot of that is because they had an expectation that wasn't met. And they had an expectation of their fathers being in their lives and their fathers weren't in their lives. And so that is a pain. And when you don't know how to deal with an emotion or you've been traumatized at at an early age emotionally, if you don't deal with it, you're still that age. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what we have is that we have a lot of men, not even just black men, but we have a lot of men who are walking around who are maybe six years old emotionally in certain areas of their life. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't even know that, you're going to look at everything like a child. Yeah. So imagine you do something to me, I'm going to hit you back. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Or you do this to me, I'm going to kill you. You know what I mean? Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That it makes a lot more sense when you, when you frame it like that, that a lo- a, the community can be stuck in this child-like state because of trauma. Um, yeah. how, do we, how do we get more black dads to stay around? Well, I definitely think, you know, I actually talk to a lot of black fathers, even though I'm not a father myself. Um, I get them to a space to talk about their fears and, 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 and their emotions around a lot of, a lot of black, if you, you should watch um, Red Table Talk, Jada Pinkett show and Will Smith, he talks about being a father. He cries about how, how his father was so hard on him. And when he had his first child, he literally was just like, I'm not this guy. I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. Wow. And, and I think a lot of men feel that way. You know, they feel like, and also too, as a man, and I think this is universal, we measure ourselves in output, mm-hmm. we measure ourselves in what we achieve, how much money we make and things like that. And if you're not doing any, any of those things, then where do you find your value? Where do you find your worth? Right. Right. And when you don't understand when somebody did it to you and you look, you think you turned out okay, you think that's going to be okay too. And then not recognize that you have this shame on you on top of that, right? And so you're dealing in a place of shame. And so when you have shame, you just want to be really just run away from everything. You don't want to front confront anything. You just want to go be willfully ignorant. Mm. And um, so I just, I, I create spaces for men, for black men to get in tune with their humanity. I recently, I spoke to a group of uh, fathers uh, earlier this year and one young man, he, his first Father's Day, he wanted his father to tell him Happy Father's Day. And I, I guess that his father was expecting him to call him and whatever it was, they ended up not calling each other on Father's Day. His father ended up passing away. This man was 45 years old, Mitch. He started breaking down crying because he just wanted to hear Happy Father's Day from his father. Wow. And so, like, there are so many men who are harboring and holding on to that pain. And when you don't know how to deal with it, when you can't even name what it is you're experiencing, you're going you're gonna to choose the easier option. Yeah, because you've never been shown how. And, and I think that, that yeah. that's the breaking of, of the cycle is that we need to help. We, particularly white people, need to help create the conditions where um, the black community feels respected, financially supported, secure, everything empowered, really, so that they can use that platform to heal and not have to pass down trauma onto their children, be present, look at their demons, all that stuff. And I think... So, so white people do play a role, a big role in supporting the black family and the black father figure staying in the home. 
Yeah. It's, and, and, and I always say that heal communities start with heal individuals. Yeah. And so we have to, you know, and that's the work that I do. I, and again, I think it's much bigger than that. When I was talking to you about it, I'm not recognizing that I'm actually wanting to create better families yeah. and families in doing that. And by having the men process and deal with their emotions and teaching them how to process. Yeah. Sorry, my mom is walking into a podcast recording. Sorry, I'm going to get the dog. <laughs> Between you and the dog. Sorry. <laughs> she was scratching about a million times before. Are you doing the podcast? Yeah. So sorry. No worries. Um, so, so many good discussions. Um, and I also, not that we have time to talk about it now, but I think a point you raised earlier that I didn't hit on enough was that you know, you said someone was in jail for an ounce of weed. Something that has helped me destroy my white privilege is researching how um, we move from slavery to incarceration, largely through the modality of drugs. And mm -hmm. that was like the legal way to, to put people as slaves. Um, mm -hmm. And now, ironically, it's fucking legalized marijuana. Um, that and that is so crazy. Yeah. People are in jail still to this day. And most states are now weed is legalized. Right, right. So I think that's a massive, massive, massive problem. I also think that the crack epidemic, not you know, people don't know enough about that. Like I, I read that um, for for powder, for powder cocaine, hell, you needed like seven times the amount of powder to get put in jail for the same thing when it comes to crack. So that was obviously targeting the black community because yeah. of affordability. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I think the injustices in terms of sentencing for the, for the drug use of affordability between crack and, and normal cocaine. So, yeah, I think when people look beneath the surface, they see all these things that looked lawful but weren't and has resulted in decades of sy systematic racism. Um, yeah. Um, so a few couple questions before we end, um, do you think uh, I've seen a lot of shaming tactics going on and to be honest, it really hit me hard that I was petrified to even have this discussion with you, let alone post anything on social media, because it was like a minefield, a minefield. And I've only been able to be this comfortable because you've allowed it. People, you know, when your emotions are running high, my, my business partner always says, when emotions run high, intelligence runs low. Yeah. And when you are in a, a very highly charged emotional state, you're not, no one's thinking, oh, Mitch is just trying to figure it out. Oh, I know him. Or even taking the time to be like, I know who Mitch is and blah, blah, blah. They're just going off, they're running off the, the heightened emotion. And while I understand that there's also a space that sometimes we, we do need to take time to process so we can have a formulate, you know, mm. uh, a formal thought um, and be able to contextualize what it is that we're feeling and experiencing. And that takes time to process. Yeah. And, 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 and I didn't put any, up anything immediately and I'm black, you know, what I mean? yeah. I didn't up anything immediately because literally people are calling me left and right want to do talks and wanted me to do workshops and things like that. I have clients, I have all these things. I really didn't even have time to really even process what happened. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm sure there are a segment of people who thought the same thing about me. Oh, you're black and you're posting about this. Um, not knowing that, not knowing that it hurt me very viscerally. I felt it very viscerally. 
seeing you know seeing a man die and ask for his mama like that that traumatized me damn you know I mean? yeah but just because i didn't post about it doesn't mean that it didn't affect me um you know now i'm able to speak about it more actually because i've had time to process and really wanted to formulate my words and, and really get my thoughts together around it right and that's when it's more well it, it can be more powerful when that happens yeah absolutely and and again you know this is the work that i do so Again, just reemphasizing the point that, you know, as black men, as black people, we, life is still happening from us. And so even in this space of what seems like hopelessness, there's always still hope. Mm. If, if, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be where we are today in terms of the things that we've achieved as, 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 as black people. There has to be hope getting still woven in, 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 in these spaces. Agreed. So if you were to wave a magic wand, this is a shit question, but I'm just trying to get into like the heart of it. What, what is the greatest want for the black community? What would that look like? Man, for me, obviously I'm going to be, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to consider, I mean, racism is part of it, but I would want for us as black community to like really dismantle the effects of slavery within ourselves like within mm. um and i would want us to really be whole and really confront and really have those deep conversations um those uncomfortable com- conversations about molestation i was molested you know just really this mm. really just healing as people because i think regardless of what is happening outside of us if you're whole as a person, if you are, you feel like you're operating as your best, you'll be able to fight anything. We could be uniform. We could be, we could unite like Voltron. You know what I mean? Like Power Rangers and form like this big thing and really make it happen. So for me, it would be more so about us healing and um, healing the traumas of slavery, healing the traumas of, of just, you know, the, the, the things that we've experienced as people. It's so interesting that your want for a better society from what i understand has been as much of a intercommunity as in what the black community can do for itself as it is what you want white people and other people to do for the black community mm-hmm. it's a very empowered place yeah because i because i think being whole and having peace is the best thing you can you can ever be yeah yeah and that and that can start internally that starts internally yeah yeah. What's, uh, what's three things you want white people, or m- maybe let's start here. What's one thing you want a white person or people outside of your community to know that will help end racism? And the same, what's one thing you want white people to do that will help end racism? Well, I would say, so I would say to them, just like you want a life of freedom and liberty and to live and to dream and to, to operate in your purpose, that's what we want too. Mm. that's what i would say to them um what was the second question i'm sorry uh, what do you want them to do so that was no what do you want them to do what's one or two things um again i, I just want you to when you see injustice when you know you have a, a leg up on something open the door yep I want you open to the door if you see, if you know some, if you know something, you know a hookup, you know something. I mean, I mean a hookup. If you know something, just say something. That's that's it. Like, yeah. So be an advocate. Use your voice to be an advocate for equality, 
and also action when you see inequality? Yeah, and really more so action. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because people yeah. say they love you, but it's not, but you're going to look for actions. Yeah. They love you. Yeah. It's really, about, it's really about the actions. It's really about, you know, having those things married together, obviously, but really just the action, man. Like, if you, like I said, if you know that this person is the right person for it, like, make that happen. Like, even with the, the companies, right? I was saying, you know, this is great to say, you know, it's like, feels like a social media moment, like to say Black Lives Matter, but bro, change your executive boards. Make them more diverse. You know what I mean? Like, like that's action to me. Not just a do- like how you said a donation. Mm-hmm. I we we don't turn on donations, but really to change the system of it, you gotta change the right the people who are constructing the system. Right. So that's that's what you know. Got it. And um, resources for people to break down their white privilege. You sent me Two Nations, um, the book by Andrew Hacker, um, uh, which is black and white, separate, hostile, unequal. Um, so check that out, um, everyone. Um, the, what other videos or books would you recommend? Oh, man. Um, my cousin, she sent me out. I thought I was doing this. And she said, tell Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> so my cousin, she's an uh, African-American uh, studies professor. Um, Amazing. So she has a whole laundry list. I can send it to you. Yeah, cool. It, it, just, it'd be uh, great. Books and things and documentaries. She sent me a PBS documentary I think I sent to you. Yeah. I think you actually would like that. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to put it on the show notes or somewhere that we can empower because I know that some of the feedback I've got from my, um, my black friends has been uh, don't just ask us also do your own research. And so I want you to know that I'm not just being lazy by asking you. I, I want you to know that I'm invested in my own time to, to figuring this out. And I think we all should be a, as white people. Yeah. Bro, listen, let me tell you something. You, you know, I, you're a really dope person and you made my, my college experience, my graduate school experience <laughs> worthwhile. So, um, thanks man. You, and I'm, I'm happy that you even, um, you even asked me to, to do this with you 100% man I'm, I'm super proud of being able to bring you know our friendship and our um, relationship from student into actually doing stuff that matters in, in podcasts like this so um yeah really really appreciate your time man and hopefully some some people get a lot out of it uh, emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced and so if there's more thoughts more stories more intentions come along so the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not act, adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but it then begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind to relax and settle away itself.